where do we begin? And that's the question that I spent quite a bit of time praying through and thinking through um, when, when looking at starting this semester um, and these Sabbath dinners and teaching the Word. Where do we go? And uh, landed here in the book of Romans. I thought it was important that we start this organization, we start this fellowship, and that we ground it upon the gospel. That the gospel of Jesus Christ should be at first and foremost in all that we do. And we call this gospel primacy. That the gospel of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, his, uh, 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 his purchasing the unmerited grace of God for us, full forgiveness, atonement for sin, uh, needs to be at the bottom of all that we do. And while at the same time, the book of Romans, which that is the primary focus of the book of Romans, it also is going to provide opportunities for us to interact with some of the current events and current philosophical issues present on campus and in the world. The book of Romans is going to explain why people are the way that they are. You know, and I know some of you just had that office, you know, scene come up in mind, you know, why are you the way that you are? <laughs> you know, the book of Romans is going to say sin. Sin messed everything up. And it's going to explain the way things, why things are the way they, they are, but also it's going to show us what is the solution. What is the solution for the brokenness in the world? What is the solution for our own dissatisfaction with ourselves? that we don't even live up to our own standards of morality and righteousness, how much less do we measure up to God's standards of righteous morality? The book of Romans is going to show that to us, make it painfully clear that no one measures up to the righteousness of God, but yet it lifts high Jesus before our eyes as the only Savior for sinners, that He is the righteousness of God, and it puts our eyes on Him. So Romans is going to help us to understand nuts and bolts, basics of the theology of Christianity, the gospel, but it's also going to help us to engage with the world with the gospel. You may hear you know, preachers say sometimes um, addressing particular things in the world, and they might say something like, well, the gospel is the only solution to this. And you're wondering, how does faith in Jesus, confessing my sin, and believing in Jesus, how does that address you know, whatever the issue of the day might be. Well, I hope through preaching through Romans and studying this book together, we will see that the gospel, the good news of the righteousness of God, permeates everything. Like, it is foundational. Everything else can be built on top of that. And so, Romans is going to show us that. So, as we get into the book of Romans, there's a couple things to look at. One, we need to understand the context of the book of Romans. So, um, Romans was a letter written to the church in Rome by the Apostle Paul. Sometime uh, around 55 to 57 AD is our best guess while he was staying in Corinth. So if you're at Perimeter Road and studying with us, we're studying through 1 Corinthians. Uh, well, Paul wrote the, the book of Romans while living in Corinth and ministering there in that church. Um, and we see that him having been unable to visit Rome, he, he wanted to get to Rome, but he says that I have been prevented from coming to Rome. He then writes this extensive and systematic explanation of the Christian message. The book of Romans is the most 
systematic book in the New Testament as far as laying out doctrine and theology in a linear fashion. And I would tell you and encourage you that as you read the book of Romans, like as we are gathered here, but I'm going to be preaching through Romans at a pace that I'm going to have to skip over some stuff, some of the, the small things, um, in order for us to get through this book before you all graduate. <laughs> uh, and so there will be some things. But as you're reading the book of Romans, here's what I want you to understand. It is an argument. It is a logical argument. It is the Apostle Paul trying to present the Christian faith and the Christian message in a logical fashion. He's trying to persuade you. He's trying to argue a position. And so when you read the book of Romans, engage with it like that. Engage with it like there is a lawyer or a professor standing in front of you presenting something to you, trying to persuade you, and he is expecting you to dialogue with him, to say, well, what about this, Paul? What about that? What about this? And as you read the book of Romans, you'll see that he's anticipating your questions. When we get towards the middle half of Romans, that really amplifies. And I remember when I was in college, when I was a college senior, really reading uh, the New Testament Romans in this way for the first time, light bulbs started coming off for me, arguing with the text. And I found that I was arguing with Paul that I was offering the questions that he is responding to. I'm like, I'm on the wrong side of this debate. Okay? So Romans wants you to argue with it. It wants you to follow the flow of the logic. When I say argue, I don't mean be resistant to the message. What I mean is engaging the thought, the logical flow from the progression. Chapters 1 through 16 are connected in a linear logical fashion. It's organized in that way. And so for us to be able to get the message as it was intended to be received, we need to interact with it in that way. See, the gospel is not a collection of fortune cookie uh, writings. It's not just a collection of wisdom that you just open up to and read a couple sentences and like, oh, that's my word for the day. No, most of the Bible is meant to be read in a similar fashion to reading anything. You read the Gospels just like you would read any other narrative or story. You read um, these letters in the way that they were intended. Uh, and so this is the way that the book of Romans was meant to be written. Now, right out of the gate, once we get into the book of Romans, we'll see this discussion of the Gospel. The Gospel of God. And I've already used that term about 15 times here and have not defined it. And so what is the gospel? That's one of those Christianese words that we use a lot. The Greek word underneath that English word gospel is euangelion. Euangelion. You means good. Anytime you see that prefix you, it means good. Euangelion. Good news. So the gospel is a proclamation of good news. It is the good news of what God has done in the work of redemption. So right out of the gate, we need to understand that the message of Romans, the message of Christianity, the message of the book of Romans is, that the, is the gospel, this pronouncement of good news. See, the gospel isn't good advice. The gospel is good news. Oftentimes we think of Christianity and Scripture um, as being good advice, things to apply into your life. And if you follow this advice to a certain sort of level of perfection, then God will be pleased with you. That is not the message of Christianity. It is not good advice. It's good news. It's a pronouncement of something that God has done, and namely, God himself 
that we receive by faith and faith alone. And then from that receipt of this gospel message, we then go and do because God, we realize that God is good and wise and all these things and we trust him. And so that's kind of context as we're where we're going and why the book of Romans. So uh, with that said, let's stand together as, as we read the word. So the bulk of tonight's uh, sermon is going to be verses 1 through 7, and then we'll skip down to verses 16 and 17. Hear the word of the Lord. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of His name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Let us pray. God, we thank you for your word, that you have provided it to us. You have given it to us in such an accessible manner in our own language that we can hold in our hands. And so, God, may that not be in vain tonight. May we receive your word. May we receive this message as so far that I rightly handle it. May it uh, penetrate our hearts and conform us to the image of your Son that you would receive glory. For you are good and there are uh, you are righteous, and you are our only hope of righteousness. We praise you, and we thank you, and ask that you bless us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. So, here's where we're going. This is the outline. Um, sort of in two categories. And it's cool that this is laid out here. We're looking at these first seven verses. Uh, oftentimes, if you're reading uh, a book of the Bible and you get into the greeting and things like that, you just kind of skim right through this. But mo there's a lot of meat in the greetings um, and the introductions to the, the books of the Bible, particularly the letters. Um, and this one is loaded with stuff. And it sort of serves as a summary of the entire book. And it's pretty cool to see how this lays out. So what we have here is the gospel of God, which is an explanation of what the gospel is, and then we'll see the second half of that is a, a therefore. And as we get into this, we'll understand that in the Christian message, the, the indicatives precede the imperatives. So indicatives is what God has done. An indicative is something that is just true, right? This is what God has done. That comes before the imperatives, which are the commands, what we are to do. So in light of what God is doing, in light of this gospel of God, therefore do this. And so we've got it broken down in six points, um, three at a time. So first we have the gospel of God was one, promised beforehand, two, concerns his son, 
and three, for the obedience of faith. So the gospel of God is promised beforehand concerning his son for the obedience of faith. And therefore, one, do not be ashamed. Two, the gospel is the power of God for salvation. And three, live by faith in the righteousness of God. Okay, so that's where we're going. Six points and three, um, and two big movements here. The gospel of God. So we see right at the beginning, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel of God. How often do you think of the gospel as being of God? The gospel of God. What does the word of communicate? What does the word of communicate? Ownership. Ownership. Good. So what that tells us is that the gospel belongs to God. He owns it. The gospel originates from his own eternal will. He's got dibs. <laughs> he claims the gospel. It originates from his own eternal will to glorify his grace and manifest his righteousness among countless other things. So this means that God sets the terms for the gospel. He owns it. He decides what it even is, right? So right off the bat, what we, when we come to the scripture, when we come to the book of Romans, we need to come understanding that this is revelation from God. God is speaking to us. He is revealing something about himself to us and also about ourselves. And oftentimes what he reveals about ourselves are the parts that we have the biggest problem with that are most offensive to us uh, because he reveals to us our sin and our need of a Savior. But this means that we can't set the terms of the gospel. One, we can't cherry pick and say, I like this part of the gospel, I like this part of the gospel, but that part I'm not so fond of. We can't say, I like love and I like grace, but that whole repentance thing and that whole judgment thing, no, I, we're not going to do that. That's too old-fashioned. That's not for today. Right? We can't do that. Why? Because it's the gospel of God. God owns the gospel. It's his gospel. He sets the term. So if you're going to have any of the gospel, you've got to have all the gospel. If you want the love and the grace, you've got to take the repentance too. You've got to take the holiness too. You've got to take God's sovereignty too. Right? We can't cherry pick. There's another way that we use that term of. It's to communicate content of something. Like just a little bit ago, we had a word of prayer. It's not a, it wasn't a word that prayer owned. It was a word that is the content of prayer. And so it is also the good news about God. The gospel of God is also good news about God. It, the gospel announces that God himself is the savior of the hopeless. That the one offended by our sin and our rebellion. Do you think of sin that way? You think of disobedience to God as rebellion? Do you think about it as being offensive to God, offending Him and His holiness and His holy character? That's what it is. And the gospel announces that the one that we have offended is our only Savior. That He Himself is the Savior. So it's good news about God. It's the, hey, your Creator, 
is good. He's merciful, slow to anger, steadfast. He's faithful. He's just. And Paul kind of summarizes it all by saying he's righteous. The book of Romans is very concerned with this idea of righteousness. And he says that the gospel is ultimately a manifestation, a revealing of the righteousness of God. Now, I wonder who thought about it like that. We naturally, as Christians living in this world, in this culture, tend to have a man-centered view of the gospel. We tend to think about the gospel as being about us. That we are at the center of the gospel. And it reveals just how crazy about us God is. Right? I remember one time someone told me that the Bible is, is God's love letter to you. I was like, oh, isn't that great? Gag me with a spoon. <laughs> the gospel is not about you. Uh, we are benefited by it greatly. And God does love us uh, more than we can even imagine. But primarily, the gospel is a revelation of the righteousness of God. When we consider the gospel, if we don't go, wow, God is amazing, He's good, just, as all of, just in all of His ways. If we don't do that when we consider the gospel. We haven't rightly considered the gospel. If we come away with the gospel going say, and we say, ain't I great? Aren't I just so lovely? Mm. Uh, you know, I'm special. You know, I'm made with purpose. If we come away saying, I, 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 we haven't rightly considered the gospel. What we should do is say, God, God, God. The gospel is belongs to God and it's about God. From beginning to end, salvation is of the Lord. The scripture says salvation is about God. Think about this. We use this language of are you saved? Are you saved? Are you saved? Have you ever thought about the question, what are you saved from? Saved from what? Think about this. From beginning to end, salvation is about God. Ultimately, as we'll see in the book of Romans, we are saved from God, namely his wrath, his justice for our sin, by God, Jesus and the redemption that he accomplishes, to God, we're reconciled to God, and God himself is our reward, and for God, for his glory. So we're saved from God, by God, to God, and for God. And so when we consider the gospel, we need to understand that it is the gospel of God. May that be evident in all that we see. And so then from there, uh, Paul goes on to say, hey, I've been set apart for this gospel. And then he describes the gospel in like a summary form here in verses 3 through 6. He starts off by saying that it was promised beforehand. Right? It was promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. And so uh, this tells us that the gospel is not something that Jesus made up. It's not something that just completely popped onto the scene new um, in the first century. Uh, the gospel is something that originated in the mind of God in eternity past before the foundations of the earth. That God desired to um, glorify his grace through the salvation of sinners and his elect people before the foundation of the earth. That's where it begins. And then from the beginning, from the very 
first chapters of Genesis, we have the promise of the gospel, the promise of redemption. So uh, in Genesis 3, 15, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, we have the proto-evangelium. Proto-evangelium. Don't look at me weird when I use these big words. You guys are in college. Proto-evangelium. It sounds like some type of bacteria. But it means the first proto-evangelium. Gospel proclamation. So uh, proto-evangelium is the the first preaching of the gospel. And we see this in Genesis 3.15. So remember Genesis chapter 3. It's the, the story of the fall of man where the serpent tempts Eve and Eve eats the fruit and gives the fruit to her husband Adam and in that sin, in that disobedience of God all of humanity is cast under the curse of sin and death and when God is issuing out curses um, there in Genesis chapter 3 um, he issues a curse to the serpent who deceived the woman and in that curse he says this God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, if you haven't grown up in church or around gospel preaching, you're going to hear that like, what are you talking about? What does that guy do with Jesus? But what we're told here is that there's enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And that the offspring of this woman will cause a bruise to the head of the snake, of the serpent. And in the same time, the serpent will bruise his heel. So we see someone who is injured, right? Their heel is injured while stepping on the head of the serpent. Which is a more severe injury? A bruised heel or a bruised head? The head, right? So what we see from the very beginning is God saying, one day there is going to come a human, someone born of woman, who will deliver a, a, a fatal blow to the serpent. So very beginning of the, of the story of redemption, we see this promise of the seed of the woman to come. If we fast forward in our Bibles to Genesis 12, uh, we see Abraham come onto the the scene and God's purposes of redemption. And Abraham makes this promise to him, right? He's an old man, no children. His wife is barren. And God promises him, Abraham, uh, I'm going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to give you offspring as numerous as the sand on the seashore, as numerous as the stars in the sky, so shall your descendants be. Abraham's like, wait a second. I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. How can we have a, a child? And uh, God promises him that, that this is something that he's going to do. And in that promise, it's not just about Abraham. It's about what God was going to do through Abraham and Abraham's offspring. And we see in here that, that God says in Genesis chapter 12, he says, In you, Abraham, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That through Abraham and his lineage, the whole world would be blessed. And we see in the New Testament, the book of Galatians, that, that this promise is referring to Jesus. That he is that offspring of Abraham by which all the families of the earth are blessed. Like if we just did like a, a genealogy or a sort of a, um, what, what do we call that when you, when you look around and you see where you're from, your heritage? Um, if, we, if we did one of those 23andMe where we, we sell our DNA to, you know, 
be communist or whatever we do with that. <laughs> Don't look at me like that, Andrew. We would find out that we represent quite a select number of families, like tribes, people groups, nations, right? And we have all been blessed through Abraham and through the offspring of Abraham. We are here because of that offspring of Abraham. So this promise to Abraham is referring to Jesus. We continue to fast forward. We look at the Old Testament law, Moses and all that stuff. Uh, we see particularly in the tabernacle and the temple. And what we see in that whole system, in that whole economy of God, is that this basic message, God is merciful to his people, but requires a substitutionary and bloody sacrifice. That in order to be near to God, in order to be in covenant with God, uh, there must be a substitutionary sacrifice that is bloody, that is death. Let me take that back to the garden. Why? Because that is the consequence of sin. God promised Adam, the day that you eat of that tree, you shall surely die. Romans chapter 6 says the wages of sin is death. Right? And so we die because we sin. And so God says, in order to be in fellowship with me, in order to be near to me, there needs to be a substitutionary and bloody sacrifice. But here's the problem. How can a lamb or a goat or a bull atone for human sin? It doesn't quite work, does it? And we see in the book of Hebrews you know, that, that the blood of bulls and goats doesn't atone for anyone. But it was here promising and picturing a true sacrifice that was to come. That there must be human substitute for human sin. There must be human sacrifice for human sin. And it must be a spotless and blameless sacrifice. And that's what we have in Jesus. So the whole Old Testament system of sacrifice is a promise of Christ to come. Paul specifically says that that, that the gospel of God was promised through his prophets. We see in the Old Testament that the prophets foretold Jesus and his work, oftentimes with amazing uh, specificity. Let me say that word. Think about Isaiah 53. You know, that, that he bears the sins of his people. Right? He was crushed for our iniquities. Right? We see this picture of a suffering servant who God puts to distress for the sins of his people. Another one that I, that I, I think you should read is Psalm 22. Uh, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus actually quotes this psalm, brings it to mind while on the cross. And when you read Psalm 22, you read it and you go, they're describing crucifixion. But you've got to realize that crucifixion wasn't even invented at the time that the psalm was written. It, crucifixion didn't come about for another thousand years at the time of the writing of Psalm 22. And so, uh, maybe a thousand years is a stretch. Several hundred years. Um, and so, you see this and you see with great specifics. And, and if you take all the places where Jesus and his life fulfills prophecy... And, and you run the numbers to calculate that, it's statistically nearly impossible for that to be true of one person. Uh, but Jesus did it. This was promised and foretold by the prophets. Um, who is the greatest prophet of the Old Testament? 
Who wants to get this one? Who, who's the greatest prophet of the Old Testament according to Jesus? Good guess. No cigar. Elijah? No. 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 It's a trick question. John the Baptist. Jesus says that John the Baptist was the greatest prophet, that there was none like him. Right? And and John the Baptist ministered in the time of the Old Testament, before the the beginning of the, the New Covenant, the New Testament. And so it's a trick question. The story of John the Baptist is recorded in what we call the New Testament, but he actually ministered in the Old Covenant time period. So, trick question. John the Baptist prophesies like very near, right? He says, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. The axe is at the root of the tree like it's almost here, right? And then he says, when Jesus comes to be baptized, he says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Very directly says, this is the one. This is the Savior. He's the one of whom all the hope of the Old Testament is pointing to. So this gospel is not just Johnny come lately. It is from the very beginning. Promised through the prophets uh, right up until the time of Christ. The next descriptor we see in verse 3 is that it's concerning God's Son. Concerning His Son. Uh, and then he, he goes to describe Jesus and you see it in sort of two categories. That Jesus is the Son of Man and the Son of God. Uh, first we see that He's the Son of Man. Uh, concerning His Son who was descended from David according to the flesh. We refer to this in Christian theology as the incarnation. That God, the, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, took on flesh. He became truly human. And everything that it means to be truly human, Jesus became that. He became truly human in the incarnation and was in that way, in that sense, descended from David. That's why we see in, for example, Matthew's Gospel, we have this long genealogy that takes Jesus all the way back and we see his genealogy descending from David. Um, and this is important in many ways. One is because the prophet said that the Messiah must come through the, uh, the genealogy of, of David. So we see another fulfillment of prophecy here. But important to see is that Jesus is truly man. This gets us back to what we talked about in the Old Testament, right? There must be human sacrifice for sin. There needs to be a human substitute. And Jesus, in his incarnation, uh, becoming man, is that. So it's very important that we understand that Jesus is truly man. He's not just some God who was kind of like a man, not a demigod. He is truly human, truly man. Descended from David according to the flesh. The second thing we see is that he is the Son of God. Verse 4. And was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. So, this is important. Jesus is the Son of God. And it says, declared to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead. So what this is saying is that the fact that Jesus of Nazareth, this guy who was born and raised in Galilee, who everybody knew who he was, right? They're like, how can this guy be the Son of God? This thing is, this, what Paul said here in Romans is that the resurrection of the dead 
evidenced that Jesus actually was the Son of God. It's not saying that um, the resurrection caused Jesus to be the Son of God. So Jesus wasn't just some ordinary man who lived a really good life and God promoted him to being a God or God adopt, adopted him as a son at some point in his life. No, Jesus has always been the Son of God. He is eternally the Son of God and the resurrection proved this, not caused it. Very important that we understand that. He is the eternal Son, uncreated. John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, referring to Jesus, right? And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Right? From the beginning, as far back as you want to go in history, God the Son was there with God, equal with the Father. And so the Gospel is about the God-man, the one who is truly God and truly man. We call this the hypostatic union. Two natures united into one person. Right? We don't have Jesus the man and Jesus the God. Did Jesus do this as a man or did he do it as God? He did it as both. Right? There's one person. Um, now, in theology, sometimes we will distinguish between the natures, but we never separate them. Right? And so uh, we'll, we'll get into that later. So we see that this, the gospel is concerning God's Son, who is the Son of Man according to the flesh, the Son of God according to our e eternality of his, his divine nature. Then it says that he's Jesus our Lord. Jesus our Lord. And, and, and another thing to look at here, look at Paul's Trinitarian theology here. So some of your professors might tell you that the doctrine of the tr Trinity was invented at the Council of Nicaea in 300-something A.D. So they'll say, yeah, you know, no one believed that until the Council of Nicaea, and they just invented that, which is not true, which is why you need to read that book. But what we see here is, look at this. Jesus Christ, we talk about the gospel of God, who is the Son of God. So we have God the Father, we have the Son of God here, and, and whose power was he resurrected? In power according to the Spirit of holiness. The Holy Spirit. So right here in the very first chapter, in the very first paragraph of the book of Romans, we see Paul's Trinitarian theology coming out here. Um, so don't, don't buy um, that. It says, Jesus Christ our Lord. So let's, let's break that down. Jesus. Who is Jesus? When's the last time you thought about the name of Jesus? Jesus is the, um, it's, it's, it's taking, uh, the, it's the English word taking straight out of the, the Greek. So if we substitute the Greek letters for English letters, we get the name Jesus. So it's Iesus in, in, in Greek. Iesus comes into Jesus in English, which is the Greek version of the Hebrew name Joshua. And so Joshua means Yahweh saves. Think about that. There's a reason, right? The angel told Mary and Joseph, right, to name Jesus Jesus because he will save his people from their sins, right? And his name means Yahweh, the Lord, God, saves. His very name is about salvation. Now, when we talk about the name of Jesus, we've we got to have this little sidebar discussion that I don't want to waste a lot of time on, but we need to address it, is 
What do we do? What, what about Yeshua? How many of you have seen discussion about the name of Jesus as Yeshua, as a right pronunciation, and we must do that? A few of you, maybe? Okay, not as many as I thought, but I'm not mad about that. Um, there's this whole thing, this whole movement of saying that the proper name of Jesus is Yeshua, and you must refer to him as Yeshua and not Jesus. And the idea is that Yeshua is the Hebrew pronunciation of Joshua, basically, and that that's what Jesus would have, would have gone by. Um, and so in order to speak to Jesus rightly, we must call him Yeshua. My simple response to this, to that is this. If that is the case, why did the apostles, inspired by the Holy Spirit of God, call him Iesus? We, we go to the original language that the, the New Testament is written in, and they call him Iesus. And if we just take that through history, Iesus, 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 Jesus, 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 we get to English, we call him Jesus. I don't have a problem if you call him Yeshua. It's going to raise some red flags. I'm going to look at you weird. <laughs> but, you know, his grandma probably called him Yeshua because they spoke Aramaic. But the apostles have no problem referring to him when speaking in Greek, Iesus. So I would say we should have no problem when speaking English calling him Jesus. Um, so that's enough time on that discussion. Jesus Christ. Now, we have to talk about this as well. Um, if, if you're new to Christianity, you, you might be surprised to know that Christ isn't Jesus' last name. That, that Christ is his title. So Jesus is his name. Christ is his title. Christ is the role that he plays in God's purposes. Uh, Christ is Christos in the Greek. It's basically the Greek version of the Hebrew idea of Mashiach. Mashiach or Messiah which means the anointed one. This is the idea in the Old Testament Hebrew of an anointed king who would come and save God's people and, and be the king in the kingdom of God where this, and he would have universal dominion. All the nations would come to this Messiah, right? And it, all the nations of the earth, all the families would be blessed in Messiah. And so Paul is saying that's Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth is Christ. Jesus is the Christ. And so, Jesus, Yahweh saves. The anointed king is our Lord. And this is the Greek word kurios. It's uh, the equivalent to the Old Testament word Adonai, which means a Lord. Most of the time, if you see the word Lord in the Old Testament, and it's not all caps, it's the word Adonai, which is the idea of king, or the sovereign, or the superior um, it's it's kind of like the word sir in a way, which is like a, a, a weakened version, but it can also be like master or king or um, the ultimate ruler as well. And so what, what Paul is saying here is that Jesus, as the Messiah, is king. He's the Lord. Um, and apparently saying Jesus is king on Twitter now is white supremacy. But I don't know how that happened in the first century uh, Palestine. But um, that is the case. Jesus is king. He is God's king, the Messiah. And he wasn't white. He was like, what do they call that? Olive. Brown. He's the Lord of all lords. The king of all kings. All nations of the earth are blessed in God's king, Jesus Christ the Lord. Now, think about this. Think about being in 
Rome, ancient Rome, and you get a letter from somebody that says, Jesus Christ is Lord. He's Kyrios. Who is Kyrios in Rome? Yeah. It was a fundamental confession to make as Roman citizens that Kaiser Kyrios, Caesar is Lord. And so right on the upfront, Paul saying, hey, city of Caesar, Jesus is Lord. There are no rivals. Christ is king. There is no king but Christ. And this title, Kyrios, both implies and requires obedience and servitude. If someone is Lord, it's implied in their title that you serve them, that you obey them, and that you father them. And Jesus is that person, and the gospel is about that. And so it's a natural flow for him to say, okay, this gospel that was promised beforehand that concerns his son, then where does he go? Is to bring about the obedience, see the word? Obedience of faith among all the nations. See, he says, verse 5, through him we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong in Jesus Christ. So it's no leap for him to say, hey, this message of the gospel is more than just about individual souls going to heaven when they die. That's part of it, right? Jesus accomplished his salvation for us so that we can go to heaven, we can escape hell, and we can be reconciled to God, right? But it's about more than that. That's just a part of it. It's about all nations coming to Jesus and that all the world obeys Jesus in faith. That's the goal. That's God's goal in the gospel, is to bring about obedience of faith among all nations. So if you believe the gospel for salvation, your belief includes faithful obedience to the God of your salvation. So Christianity is not about uh, get-out-of-hell-free cards. You know, it's not fire insurance, where you, you come to a few church meetings or Bible studies and then you get to escape hell and then you just go on your merry way. No, it's about following Christ, right? It's about dying to yourself and rising in Christ. So everything you do, your belief in God um, forms that and shapes that and, and undergirds it all along. Now, faith, that's another important phrase in the book of Romans. This whole idea of Faith versus works. How are we justified by God? This is all discussion that we will have. So what do we do with the word faith? That's another kind of religious word. I think that the faith is most closely related to our modern English word of trust. Faith and trust are, are, are very similar. You know, I used to think of faith as just being belief in something that you have no reason to believe in. That there's no basis to faith. Do you believe you have faith that God exists just like you have faith that Santa Claus is real? Right? It's just a baseless thing. So once the facts take you so far, then faith just takes over. Right? That's not what biblical faith is. Faith often calls you to believe something that you can't quite see, but it's on the basis of something that has been clearly revealed, the character and promises of God and his work and history. And so faith is most similar to trust. 
And so we trust in Christ's righteousness for our justification. We'll see. We trust that his commands are good and we obey. It's not just believing something mindlessly. It's trusting that what you see is solid. That God is solid. The gospel is about God, right? So God reveals his righteousness to him. And we see and say, wow, you're trustworthy, God. You're faithful. I will trust you and follow you. That is the goal of the gospel. And also we see that salvation is for all nations. It's for all nations. As I said, the the global dominion of Christ is a central element of Old Testament prophecies of the kingdom of God. Think about this. This is just one. Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. It says, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. You see that? Isaiah was promising there's coming a day in which God's people and the house of the Lord will be lifted up above all other nations and that all the nations of the earth will come to it, right? Will flow up. Things don't flow uphill, but does in the kingdom of God. The nations flow uphill to the Lord and they say, come, let us uh, go to the mountain of the Lord that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his past. And Paul saying, Jesus is the guy in Isaiah chapter 2. He is the one who is going to bring about the obedience of faith among, among all the nations. We, we sang this just a little bit ago when we sang um, Psalm 72, Hail to the Lord's anointed. We said, May all kings fall down before him and all nations serve him. Salvation is for all nations. A major theme in Romans is the breaking down of the Jew-Gentile divide. Right? These national divides um, an ethnic divide that, that God himself made in the Old Covenant. Um, and this is broken down in the New Covenant because God is bringing all people to himself through Christ. So this tells us immediately that there's no room in the church for racism. There's no room for any sort of ethnic superiority uh, because we are all one in Christ. That God has made us into one body. It says from uh, the two, he's made us into one. Um, and, and we should glory in seeing all nations, all ethnicities coming to love the same Savior whom we love. And uh, we should give God glory for that. Another question when we consider salvation for all nations is this thing that's been in the news lately of Christian nationalism. Have you all seen that? This discussion of Christian nationalism. Um, this is the latest boogeyman. Um, in, in the news. And uh, when someone asks me if I'm a Christian nationalist or I think Christian nationalism is a good thing, it's my first question is, depends on what you mean. Right? It's one of those loaded terms that can mean a hundred different things. And so what do you mean by that? If you're asking, do I believe that America is superior or somehow God's chosen nation um, according to their own merit, then no, I don't believe that. But if you mean, are we supposed to disciple the nations, including our own, 
and teach them to obey Jesus, as Jesus said in Matthew 28, and that our governing authorities are expected to obey God or perish, as it says in Psalm 2, and to rule as servants, literally deacons of God, as it says in Romans 13. If that's what you're asking, then yes. Depends on what you mean. All nations. Jesus is the Savior of all nations. And so that is the goal. Again, the gospel is not just about you getting your individual soul into heaven. It's about Jesus being Lord of all. He's the King of all nations. King of kings, Lord and lords. And this is good news. Like if you've got a problem with that, if you think it's okay uh, and you wish that the Pakistanis get to stay Muslim forever because that's fair, then you don't understand the gospel. You don't understand that people apart from Christ are enslaved to sin. They will perish in eternal hell apart from God. Right? So diversity for diversity's sake is no good. Diversity in Christ is a great good. But diversity apart from Christ is death. Right? We, we honor people of different faiths and different cultures as image bearers of God, deserving of respect, full dignity as image bearers of God, but we do not validate their idolatry. We do not validate their sin that brings them death, separation from God. There is one way of salvation. And so we want Pakistanis, we want the Afghans to become Christian. If that's Christian nationalism, sign me up. I don't want them to go to hell. I want Christ to receive glory. Right? There's this great story of these two missionary men who, who uh, were burdened to reach this unreached people group um, of, 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 I believe, cannibals even, on a deserted island. And they knew that they were going to do this and that their families would probably never see them again. Their loved ones would never see them again. And everyone... You know, they, they greet them and as they leave, tell them goodbye. And, and as they, they sail away from the shore, one of them uh, shouted out, May the Lamb of God receive the reward of his suffering. See, the gospel's not about us. It's about the Lamb of God receiving the reward of his suffering. It's about God. Christ is glorified and all nations coming to him. And we lay down our lives to bring about that end because he's called us, right? Paul says that he has given us grace and apostleship to bring this about. He sent messengers into the world to go to all nations to say, hey, may the Lamb of God receive the reward of his suffering. Let me tell you about God and his righteousness, that you would believe this gospel and turn to him and be saved. That's what the gospel is about. And it says, listen to this, in verse 6, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Put yourselves in the shoes of a first century Roman citizen, Gentile Roman citizen. Here you have a Jewish Messiah, a Jewish king, and, and his ambassador says, you are called to belong to him. That would be radical. That would be wild. It's no less wild for you today. If you're faithful, if you believe in Jesus Christ, you are called by God to belong to Jesus Christ. It's totally accessible to receive all the blessings of Christ in the gospel. Right? He's accomplished, accomplished it, and, and we're just announcing it to you. And then it says, 
um, there in the greeting, verse 7. To those who are loved by God and called to be saints. Man, just think about that. To those who are loved by God and called to be saints. I mean, if, if, if that was your, your bio on Instagram, loved by God and called to be a saint, um, that would probably get you canceled. But uh, it would be great. Called to belong to Jesus Christ. Do you believe that? Do you believe that if you're faithful in Jesus Christ, that you are called to belong to Him? It's no longer you who lives. It's Christ who lives in you. You belong to Him. And if you believe in the gospel of salvation in Jesus Christ alone, you have only the sovereign calling of God to think. It's not that you were wise in coming to God or that you were humble. No. God's sovereign choice, His sovereign call is what deserves all the glory. He loved you before the foundation of the world. Your calling and your destiny is to belong to Jesus Christ. This is 100% grace. The gospel is 100% grace. It, it, it's not God does 99% and you do 1%. It is 100% grace from God. And that's offensive. That is the most offensive doctrine in Christianity. If we think about all the things that might trigger people and be offensive to people in Christianity, this is the number one thing. The grace of God. Why? It's offensive from two angles. First, a holy God would never justify sinners. Is the objection people would raise. A holy God would never justify sinners. You have to do good and be good to earn God's favor. See, this objection sees the gospel as slandering God. It's an attempt of preserving God's holiness. They see the gospel of grace as belittling God's holy. This was the objection that the first century Jews had. That you're saying you can be justified by God apart from good works of law? God would never do that. He's too holy. This is the objection of modern-day Muslims. Muslims and even Roman Catholics. That the Christian doctrine of salvation by faith alone, by grace alone, belittles God's holiness. The second objection is the flip side. And that's this one. I don't need grace. I'm not a helpless sinner. I'm mostly good, and I just make mistakes from time to time. See, this objection sees the gospel as slandering self. The first objection sees the gospel as slandering God. The second one sees it as slandering self. I don't need to be saved. I'm good. I'm certainly not a helpless sinner who needs a man to be crucified in my place. This is the objection that is on this campus, primarily. You're not going to run into too many people on this campus who are worried about uh, slandering God. But if you slander them and uh, affront their self-righteousness, then, then you've got, you got trouble. This is the one that most of us struggle with. That we don't realize the depth of our depravity. We don't realize how great our need of a Savior is. You know, the Gospel calls us out. There, there's no pretending that we are righteous in and of ourselves as Christianity. The idea of a self-righteous Christian 
is an oxymoron. Because at the heart of Christianity is the confession that there is no good in me. I have no righteousness of my own. I am so wicked and depraved that the Son of God had to take on flesh, live a life of suffering, and be crucified in my place to atone for my sin. That's how wicked I am. So whenever someone accuses you of sin on campus, if they, if they slander you and they say, well, you're just wicked and evildoer, they would never use those terms, but if that's what they say, you go, you only know the half of it. You know, uh, last or two semesters ago, I think it was, when um, the, we had these evangelists on campus, Adam and Kerrigan, um, much of what they preached was solid and sound. Some of what they preached was actual, literal heresy. Um, they weren't ejected to the heresy. The crowds weren't. Um, but, but here's the thing. They're, one of their heretical beliefs is this idea of sinless perfectionism, that, that they, know, they no longer sin. And their idea is sin is just something bad that you do, and you just need to change your mind and repent of it. And we believe, no, you're hopelessly enslaved to your sin. It's just not something bad that you do. It's a corruption of who you are. And unless God, in His sovereign mercy and love, reaches down and rescues you and changes your heart, you are hopelessly lost. I am hopelessly lost. Right? And so that gives us a position of humility to say, I need grace. If it wasn't for grace, I would be completely lost. Faith in this gospel and a life lived in maximal obedience to it, especially when this gospel is proclaimed in the world, brings ridicule, slander, and persecution, which is why he moves on after sort of telling the Roman Christians that, hey, I, I want to come see y'all, but I've been hindered. So I'm writing to you. And he says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. He says, do not be ashamed. In light of all that we've said, do not be ashamed. Why does he say that? Because that's the perennial temptation for Christians, to be ashamed of the gospel, to fear man. But if we understand that the gospel is a revelation of the righteousness of God and it tells us that God is for us, that He loves us and He's given us His Son and He's promised us an inheritance of all things, we will endure. We will not be ashamed of this message. Listen, Christ Himself was mocked and slandered and crucified for our salvation. Will we be ashamed to follow Him? When we are mocked, will we remember Jesus? Paul says, do not be ashamed of this gospel. It is the power of God unto salvation. The power of God. If you could access the power of God, would you take it? God says, I've given it to you. It's in the gospel. Do not be ashamed. The problem is most of the time we're ashamed of the power of God. And we, we, we hide it under a bushel. No, I'm going to let it shine. Let it, let it out of that bushel. God has chosen to manifest His power through the proclamation of the gospel, not human tradition, not human philosophy. That is why at Coram Deo, we don't want to have any gimmicks. We want to eat good food together, fellowship together. We want to sing psalms and, and hymns that are ten times older than any of us, a hundred times older than any of us. 
Haddon, 100 times older than Haddon. Because we believe that the power of God is in the gospel, not in our gimmicks, not in our light shows or our lasers or not in our cheesy little games, uh, but it's in the power of God. We get up here and I preach way too long because the power of God and the salvation is the gospel. We want to lean into that power that God has given us. We want to proclaim God's total word into every area of life because it's the power of God and the salvation. Do you want to see change hearts? Is there darkness in the world? It just seems hopeless, impossible to push back. The power of God and the salvation is in the gospel. He's made it available. The gospel alone has effectual power from God. Do you trust it? Are you faithful? Do you believe that God will uphold his promises in his word? And will we lean into that? Lean into it so much so that if God was unfaithful to his promises, we would fail and look like fools. When you're leaning into the promises of God that hard, then you're getting somewhere. But if you're always testing to say, I can't go this far, I can't go this far, because God's not going to catch me then we're not faithful to the promises of God. The, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Finally, we are to live by faith in this righteousness of God. In the gospel, we see the righteousness of God, and so we should from that be moved to a worship-fueled life of faith. A worship-fueled life of faith. He says the gospel is revealed from faith for faith. I mean, all that you do should be done in faith of God, fueled by worship of who he is. The righteous, this is a quote from Habakkuk 2. Habakkuk 2, the righteous shall live by faith. This is basically the thesis statement of the book of Romans. The righteous shall live by faith. The rest of the book go on really to unpack this statement. How do you live as a Christian? How do you live righteously in this world? You live it by faith in God. Faith in this gospel. The righteous, the righteous shall not live by their righteousness. The righteous shall live by faith in God's righteousness. True, faithful Christians never place their hope in themselves. Not in their self today, and, and hear this one, not in their future ideal self. Some of you have your hope set in the person that you will be. Trust me, I'm 32 years old, and I, and I haven't gotten there yet. Right? I thought I'd be well, way more put together by 32 than I am now. So um, don't put your hope there. Not in yourself today, not in yourself in the future. Your hope as a faithful Christian is only and always the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ. And so we live by faith, moment by moment, day by day. Your approval before God is Jesus Christ. Not in how you measure up. Not in how you perform. Not in the standards that you set for yourself that you reach or don't reach. Or the, the standards that your parents have set for you that you can never attain. Your acceptance before God is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Live day by day, moment by moment in faith. So we believe God's word and we put our complete trust in him. So that was a, a deep dive into the book of Romans.
The righteous shall live by faith. We put the gospel first in all things. Think of it as a foundation upon which you build your entire life. Lord, we thank you for uh, your word. We thank you that you have given it to us and you've not hidden it from us. You are faithful. You are righteous. Help us to see it. Um, God, we pray that you give us faith uh, to be obedient to your commands. Help us to trust in you and not our own thoughts, not our own strength, not our own wisdom. And Lord, we pray that you build up this fellowship around this gospel, that it be first and foremost in all that we do, that we be a humble people, um, not thinking of ourselves more highly than we should, um, but exalting you and your glory and your grace, and all at the same time uh, being bold and standing on your word, and because we know that you are good and we trust you, and that all that you say is for our good and for your glory. So we ask that you apply this word to our lives for your glory in Jesus' name.